Hello and welcome to the program. You can visit the website anytime you like. It's rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Busy program ahead of us tonight on Mooney Goes Wild with our regular panel of Nile Hatch and Greystones, Ainini Launa at her home in Terenure, and Dr. Richard Collins in Malahide. And boy, oh boy, have I got an email for you guys tonight. We get lots of emails to the program. We endeavour to answer as many as we can. Some we bring to your attention on air, and that's what I'm about to do now. It's from Philomene Declare. And she says, Dear Derek and panel, I always enjoy listening to this programme and thank you for all your commitment to the natural world and the interesting ways you bring this to listeners. Well, that's a good start. She goes on. I'm emailing to check an observation pertaining to the gender of animals. Hmm. Is there an assumption that nearly all animals referred to are male or might some be female but referenced male? For example... The delightful story captured by the photographer in Carlingford about the salmon and the whale, with both referenced as he. He had taken a photograph of a dolphin and it seemed to be playing with its food, if you remember. We discussed it on the programme. I'm wondering if there is a normative naming of animals as he or were both animals gendered male? 40 minutes into the programme, she goes on. Richard references a leopard seen some time ago. Again, the leopard is identified as he, and therefore implied gendered male. To explore this, I suggest listening back to this episode and collect data and see if or how many of the animals observed and referenced are female and how many are male. It seems that animals gendered female or she are somewhat invisible. Is Michelin Mass Philomene Declare? Well, Philomene, I think you're onto something. Let's put it to the panel, shall we? Ainini Launa. I have to say she has a point. Um, and what really infuriates me is when people are talking about bees and bumblebees and worker bees and they call them he when everybody knows that the, they're all female. And it isn't just happening on our programme, perhaps. I mean, emails come in all the time. They're always referring to what is this little guy and what is this and always referring to everything as male. And I suppose it comes from the pursuit long ago of people always being described, the humans being all described as males because the males were the only ones that ever did anything. But it's, it's, it's a bad habit and I don't approve of it at all. And I don't like when I referred to as a male just because Aina can be a boy's name as well as a girl's name. It annoys me when I'm called Aina and then I'm called a man as well. But we should we should be saying she or he indiscriminately. We shouldn't be saying he see it or it or you know these other things we should say and the animal occasionally we could say he but the animal we could say she and just let it go at that not to get hung up too much about it. Richard well, it's an interesting one, and there are various conventions. For instance, if you take ships, I think they are invariably named after females, except in the case of warships, such as the Tirpitz or the Graf Spee or the Hood or things like that. So there is that convention there, and it goes way back. But it's probably grounded in religion, because God is he, 
And he has a son, according to Christian theology. He hasn't got a daughter. He has a son, and he had 12 apostles all made. So, and this kind of convention arose. But in certain places, it pays to be female. If you were on the Titanic, you'd get in the boats if you were female. In the First World War, you would be sent over the top if you were a male. <laughs> so there's it swings and roundabouts. I prefer to use the word it where possible. It's anthropomorphism to call an animal a he or a she. Mm-hmm. It should be simply called it, but it's very impersonal. If yeah, want to be- yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the email, it says, uh, f- 40 minutes into the programme, Richard references a leopard seen some time ago. Again, the leopard is identified as he and therefore implied gendered male. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I don't know why I thought it was a male. Anyway, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Ten <laughs> lashes, definitely. All, all right, Niall. I think it does come down to unconscious gender bias, which uh, is a a problem all throughout society. And it is something that we all do need to overcome. Uh, There there are various cultural reasons why that is there, but we do need to to change our mindset on this. And it's just, it just happens uh, in many walks of life that there's an unconscious preference or assumption of masculine gender towards things. And and, and that's not right at all. Obviously, when describing an animal, if you do know the gender of the animal, then using he or she is absolutely fine. Many birds, for example, the plumage will differ between the males and females, it's, it's quite easy to tell which is which. But I think in most cases, referring to them as it or the species or whatever, that, that that's probably the way to go. But it reminds me of a very interesting conversation I had just recently with a friend from the Czech Republic. So she's an ornithologist and she was asking me, in English, do we think of various birds or different creatures as being he or she? Because English, of course, we don't have genders for our nouns and many, many other languages, including Irish, do. So she was saying that when she thinks of a particular type of bird in Czech, when she's describing it, that bird or that mammal or that insect, whatever it may be, it will be a he or a she, depending on what the gender of that noun is, regardless of what the actual biological gender of that individual is. And I found that very interesting. It's a totally different way about, of thinking about biology. And because we're, we're speaking in English, when we're talking about these species. It's one that we're not really conscious of. So I found that really quite fascinating. Well, in future, guys, if we don't know if it's a he or a she, are we all going to say it? Probably, yes, indeed, I would imagine, if we have to be on our P's and Q's. But speaking of language, I mean, the Irish word for a girl is Colleen, and Colleen is a masculine noun. English has dropped these masculine and feminine descriptions of nouns. But in Irish, for example, they're there as well. I'm going to call them it in future, not to get into trouble, unless I know I'm talking about a bee, and bees are all female doing all the work. Richard? Well, I should depend on the context, oh, I think. All right. Think okay. right. Remember, in the in the case of birds, the glamorous plumaged ones are the males. So when you're scanning a flock, you'll see a shoveler. Oh, there's a shoveler there. It's a male, mm-hmm. of course. Not always. You, by and large, it is the males that are glamorous, that attract attention, and that are known. The females mm. are the drake, the well duck, known. the male is very colourful, and the female is. is drab. Drab, yeah, that's the good example of it. So, so just to be fair to everybody, from now on, we should say it unless we are sure. Are we all agreed on that? Yeah, yeah. fine. Okay, thank you very much, Steve. Now let's move on.
The other day I was walking along the Bull Island and I come up the causeway to come back onto the road into St. Anne's Park and I noticed a hooded crow. And the hooded crow was trying to crack open something. Now I've made a little video and I've put it on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. If you can't see it today you'll be able to see it tomorrow. But Niall you've had a look at this video. It shows a hooded crow cracking into what looks like a tennis ball. It looks like it's dribbling it down the road quite deliberately. So, yeah, it seems to be certainly very enamoured with this new object that it's found. It's trying to work out maybe what it is. Is it edible? Is, is it kind of fun to play with? We know that hooded crows are very intelligent birds and they need a lot of stimulation. So when they find novel objects, they like to investigate them. They like to poke and prod and push them around the place. And maybe that's what's happening here. This is the process of by which a crow works out whether something is edible or not. And it does seem to be enjoying itself. It certainly seems to be developing some sort of ball skills as it's getting up all down the road. <laughs> but at what point does it give up? It kind of depends on what it's trying to do. If it's trying it's to hone trying to its it skills. It's trying to crack it over to get the food. <laughs> well, that's, 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 one, that's one interpretation, but not necessarily. Um, yeah. it, it may be trying to hone its skills. It seems to be actually quite good at literally dribbling this along the road with its beak. Uh, so maybe it's, it's, it's a skill it's trying to hone through a form of play. Perhaps it is maybe a rather dumb crow and doesn't realise that it can't eat this. It doesn't give up uh, uh, soon enough. Uh, it's hard to say, but I'd say a lot of it could be down to actually mental stimulation and that bird wanting to explore its environment and work out what this new object is. Aina, what do you think of this little video? Well, I thought it was a classic example of, you know, the way when people ask you, why is this behaviour in wildlife? There's only ever two answers. It either has to do with food or with sex. <laughs> so I would say in this case, it's to do with food. Now, while it obviously wasn't going to eat the ball, it must have been, as Niall said, honing its skills because otherwise, you know, why would it be rolling it around like that? feeling it to see was it maybe an orange, was it maybe an egg, whatever it was. But it was for food at any rate. Obviously it wasn't holding territory or looking for a girlfriend. So it's the first of the answers <laughs> rather than the second. That's what I thought. That's what I thought too. Anyway, Aina, Lorna Gron, tell us more. That's right. National Tree Day is on Thursday coming. It's on Thursday, the 6th of October, and it's Spar National Tree Day this year. And this is the day when the Tree Council of Ireland have an educational day with the primary schools. So the tree we're sending out to the primary schools this year is the holly tree. And of course, the theme this year is rooting for nature. So we're rooting for nature. We're looking at the roots. We're looking at the things that grow onto the tree, like fungi, like root hairs talking to each other the wood wide web and we're getting the kids in school to plant holly trees because that's the tree this time round. We've been giving out a different native tree each year for the last oh I don't know 10 years and as a consequence if you're a school that has been collecting them every year you'd have a nice little grove of native trees by now and many of our primary schools do. So all the information for this is available on the dedicated website which is treeday.ie you go online you take the pledge you ask for a holly tree to be sent to your school. So all things trees next Thursday and if there isn't a hurricane or anything dreadful we can go out for walks around our school, we can look at where the trees are, go for woodland walks. So all things trees on Thursday because it's Spar National Tree Day, Derek. Actually, Aina, the holly and the ivy will feature on Christmas Day as a Mooney Goes Wild special documentary which you're taking part in yourself. That's right indeed. I mean, the tradition of bringing holly into the house goes a long way back, much further back than Christianity. So I shall be talking about that because that's I find that extremely interesting. And of course, ivy is another evergreen that's around at this time of the year too and has to do with Christmas very much so as well. Anyway, don't give it all away. We'll wait until Christmas Day. Now, Aina, I want to ask you about the Bogavallan. How many counties does it straddle? 
Well, no, I'd have to think about that. Let me see it in my mind's eye. It's the old Lake of Allen that was there after the Ice Age, right in the centre of Ireland. So it must be near Offaly mm-hmm. and Leash. And then on the other side, it would be Westmeath and Meath and probably Kildare as well. It probably actually does straddle five counties. It would be on the border of all of them because, you know, when they set up the county boundaries, they, they used a place that you couldn't move from one to the other as a boundary. So the bog would be a nice boundary to keep the people from Kildare away from the people of Meath or whatever <laughs> they were doing their boundaries, in fact. So I'd say probably, yeah, probably the whole five counties right in the centre of Ireland because, you see, what happened after the Ice Age was the ice melted all this water was lying around. If it was any kind of a slope, it flowed away like on the Shannon, those lakes all drained and you had a river going in and out. But in the middle where it was like a saucer, you had this lake of Allen. And of course, then over the centuries and over the millennia, it filled in with vegetation and became a huge raised bog. And I think at one point it must have been something like, oh, I don't know, maybe over 300 square miles. And of course, it was a filled up lake. So there wasn't rocks and things all through it. So it was was a great source of turf and of peat for harvesting after Bordnemona was set up in the 1940s. So it was it was a huge resource at that time when we needed indigenous fuel. So nowadays, of course, you know, the, the amount of area where it's uncut and is pristine bog is much less. But it's still a large flat area. You stand there and you look and there's, you know, there's nothing, there's no mountains, there's no nothing. You're just looking across vast skies. You know, if there were a murmuration of starlings, you'd have nothing to impede your vision of those. So wide open spaces in the middle of the country, really quiet and a lovely place to go of an evening, actually. Now, why am I asking you about the Bog of Alanena? Well, I don't know. You might be having a notion that you want to go down and have a look. How do I know why you'd ask me any questions? I mean, am I in your head? I mean, Lord, do you really want me to answer that, Derek? <laughs> well, you're about to find out. Cue the music. <laughs> That piece of music can only mean it's the arrival of one man. Well, actually, when I say the arrival, he's at his home in Dublin 15. But it is our biologist stroke reporter, Mr. Terry Flanagan. Terry, can you explain to Aina why I've got the bog of Allen on my mind, please? Well, very simple, because I told you during the week I was going to travel down there, and mm-hmm. that's where I was. Now, you know during the summer, I've yes. been all over the country studying all living over. things. From butterflies in Lullymore to slow worms in the Burren, and from hedgehogs in Galway to bats in Limerick. Well, this week I was on the trail of something that's very much dead. Yes, I was on the Bog of Allen where I met up with sculptor Brian O'Loughlin. Brian works with bog oak, which he finds in the bog oh, yeah. and then brings them back to his studio. So, on a fine autumn evening, I met up with him as he searched for some new pieces and then accompanied him back to his workshop in Rathangan to learn more about the process of giving these pieces a new lease of life. Ooh, sounds lovely. Hello, Brian. Ah, Terry, how's it going? Not too bad. God, this is absolutely beautiful where you are here. You can actually see the Hill of Allen from here. You can. And I see you with a piece of bog, or what looks like a piece of bog oak, you look like you're going to try and dig it out, are you? <laughs> I'm not, for the simple reason that I was just scraping off the surface to see what was underneath it, and it's actually a piece of bog yew. Okay, so we, we often refer to it as bog oak, but it can be yew or even pine, is that right? No, bog wood covers them all. Right. But bog oak would be more specific, literally was oak, and the tannin in the oak reacted with the iron in the bog, so the bog oak is actually black. 
while the pine and the yew are very similar. It's incredible to think that these pieces that are here, some of them are, are above ground, and I know there's quite a lot below ground, but they're about five or 6,000 years old. The bogs start forming about 8,000 years ago, up until really about 2,000 years ago. So that's what you're talking about for the bulk of the Bog of Allen. And what would have happened would have been these trees, they would have been grown on the edge of this swampy land and then they died and they fell in. Yeah, the Bog of Allen is what's called a raised bog. So it would have been originally a small lake and there would have been oak trees, forests all around it. Like when I'm looking for wood, you never know what you're going to find. But if I find one little piece of bog oak, I know there's more because there wasn't only one oak tree here. Okay, so where are you bringing me to? So I'm going to bring over here. There's a little piece I saw sticking out of the bog. So we're going to get a piece of virgin bog oak, unseen by humans ever, probably. So we take it that it's in the bog about 5,000 years, and it does continually rise to the surface. Like Normally when you get the bog oak, there's a lot of it, but often a couple of years later you'll get a little bit more as it rises to the surface, which I presume is something to do with the spinning of the earth that kind of continually pushes up to the soft ground. So we'll just go over here, Terry. Now, keep your eyes peeled because it's a very small piece. Well, what's visible is very small. That might change. Oh, is that it? Yeah, see there, look. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so oh, we've got... Yeah, so it's about, it's about half a metre long or so, and it's, yeah. it's just like a ridge, and it's sticking out. It's sticking out just above the surface. So what you're doing now, Brian, is you're here. I'm just you're digging dig down the piece that's around it. Yeah. And you're going to see... It's moving, so it's a small piece. Now, so as again. you're looking at that now, do you have anything in mind as to... Oh, it's a little oh, bit longer oh, than we okay. thought. Yeah. It's probably two metres or more. No. Uh, it's two metres, I'd say. Now, have you any idea in your head at the moment what you think that might end up as? Um, well, looking at it there, it kind of gives you a lot of freedom because it's a very solid piece. However, there's not a lot of natural character to it. Yeah. So it's one of those pieces... It's very basic, isn't it? Yeah. In the sense that it's just one straight column. Correct. So I'd imagine what I'll do is... I think it would lend itself to one of those tall lilies. And the lighter colour brown would be nice in it. So I'll bring it home, I'll throw it in the shed, and I'll come back in about five years' time and decide. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay, well, let's get it. There's a bit of lift in this. Let's get it. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you're with me, Terry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Terry, come on in here, I'll show you what I'm working on at the minute. This is the workshop, yeah? Yeah. Okay, so, well, I see lots of finished pieces in here. They're beautiful. They're very, very dark. That's the first thing I'd say. Well, absolutely, and that's really what sets it apart from all other wood. Yeah. Now, can I touch a piece? Of course. Yeah, I I like to see people touching them, Terry. They They are tactile. It's very, very smooth. It's not like that piece that I see on the wall over here that you you haven't worked on this yet, or maybe the top of it. Correct. And I really I use this as a sample. So that's the way I find it, where it's kind of very rough, gnarly. It's a lot lighter. Yeah. So the first thing I do is I'd actually clean that down just with a wire brush or something so I can actually see where the weaknesses are or any faults in it. Then I'll decide what I'm going to do with it. Now, this just looks like a plank. It's about a metre, a metre and a half long and about maybe 10 or 15 centimetres wide. Yeah. You've, you've worked on the top of it. 
you've smoothed it off and it looks as if you've have you maybe oiled it as well yes what i've done i've taken maybe centimeter two centimeters off to get down into the harder piece of wood but then i actually sand it and what is that going to be when it's finished uh, my plan is that it's going to be a bird a bird yes well, but can I just say, it doesn't look like a bird to me. <laughs> I've never seen a bird that's about a metre and a half long or Not whatever. Yet. But, but there's no wings to it, so you add pieces to it, is that it? By and large, no. Normally now what I do is I actually know what I'm looking for. Rather than relying on the piece of wood to tell me, I will actually have in my mind what I want to do, whether I want to do a violin or whether I want to do a bird or a wall piece, and I will find a piece that my vision will fit into. But something I notice here in some of your pieces, that you're using gold paint. It's not just the black of the bog. Correct. And in fairness, it's gold leaf as opposed to gold paint. So it's 23 karat gold. Right. And I use it on quite a few pieces because it really, it makes it pops. Sometimes you get a little more than a silhouette because it's all so solid and black. But a little bit of gold really makes the piece pop. Before I finish, let's have a look. There's one piece I saw outside just as we were coming in the door. Yeah. It was quite a large piece. We're just going outside the workshop here. It's on a stand. I presume this is for, for outdoors. So, the, so yes. you do have indoor and outdoor pieces. Yeah. Now this piece, it's, it's probably two or three metres long. It's on a stand and it has a piece of gold fleck going through the middle of it. Yeah. And what looks like a teardrop at the bottom. It's called the golden hour, which is the final hour as the sun goes down. So really what you're looking at, the gold along here is the horizon. How do you feel about letting them go? Because you do sell them at the end. Do you miss them? I'll be honest with you, yes. And sometimes the longer you have a piece, the harder it's to let go. Rather than being frustrated, why haven't I sold it? Yeah, I remember a famous author once saying to me that when he sells a book, it's still his book. It's always his book. Well, unfortunately, when I sell a piece, it's no longer mine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, I, I don't mind. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm doing it to sell pieces. But sometimes I'd nearly rather not. <laughs> you know. Thank you very much indeed, Terry. More details as always. RTE.ie forward slash Mooney Now Nile and Aina. I'm sure you saw this article during the week about Scottish salmon being on the decline. Yes, indeed, I did, actually. It was, a, you know, another salutary tale, I'm sorry to say, reading about this sort of thing. But the interesting thing about it was it wasn't just about the salmon in the Atlantic Ocean. The article was actually speaking of the salmon in the rivers in Scotland. And it was saying that the fact that there's no tree cover along by the rivers is having a big impact on the fish life, including the salmon, who obviously come up the rivers to breed. So when you have trees growing along the banks of the river, the shade of the trees keeps the sunlight away from the river. And as a result, the water is much cooler than it would be if there were no trees growing along the banks. And apart from anything else, the roots of the trees hold on to the soil, stop soil erosion. So having riverline woodland is really, really important for the biodiversity of rivers. In Scotland, then, this article was advocating rewilding these areas, planting trees alongside the edges of the river in order that the shade of the branches would cover the river and keep it from actually getting too warm in the summertime. Now, this, this is actually quite an interesting thing because one of the one of the things they give out about in Ireland when they plant Sitka spruce is the fact that 
the leaves acidify the river and they fall in and make the river more acidic. So obviously what they must plant in Scotland are not trees that are going to acidify the river and make a bad situation worse, but, but trees that are not like that. So trees that were native to there originally that had been removed over the centuries and put back along. So there are various species of trees that grow very well along river banks and I'm thinking particularly of the alder tree which is really a tree that grows very well. It's able to tolerate lots of water, it has red timber, it's very good and it's of course a native species to both ourselves in Scotland. Other things like willow, hazel, these are trees that will grow very well along river banks and river edges and by shading it then from the warmth and the sunshine it keeps the water cool. And why is it important to have the water cool? Well, there's more oxygen dissolved in cooler water than there is in warmer water. Warmer water releases oxygen much more quickly and there's less oxygen available to the fish. So by having the, the banks of the river shaded by trees that are there, naturally occurring or planted and put back as native species, it's definitely going to make the oxygen levels more suitable for the salmon. The salmon come in towards the end of the year, swim all the way up the Mm -hmm. rivers to the headwaters and that's where they spawn. And obviously the fresher and the more oxygen there is in the water, the better and the more successful this is. So it's it's a good project and I look forward to see how it works. Mm. Speaking of salmon, Aina, in a moment we'll be hearing from our fishery scientist, Dr Ken Whelan. Ken is in Greenland at the moment. Nile, the Greenland white-fronted geese which visit Ireland every year, come to us from Greenland. Have you ever been there? And isn't it about time these birds start arriving on our shores? It is indeed. I haven't yet had the pleasure of going to Greenland. It's certainly a place that I would love to go to. Uh, I'd be very keen to see those Greenland white-fronted geese in the breeding season. They, they nest there in the summer, then they come to us here in Ireland in the winter. And it's, it's a bird that's very close to my heart because, of course, it's the bird that's on the logo of Birdwatch Ireland. So back when Birdwatch Ireland was set up all those years ago, 54 years ago now, uh, that was the, the, the main species that the organisation focused on. And for good reason, because the majority of the world population actually spends the winter here in Ireland and the most important single site for them would be the Sloblands of County Wexford. Uh, they hold uh, roughly half of the global population, which is, is really astonishing when you think about it. it yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful bird. It used to be known in Ireland as, as the bog goose. It was very much associated with those kind of wetland habitats. Mm. Uh, but as it got pushed out of those areas, it seemed to then adapt more to being in the Sloblands, the reclaimed lands uh, in the south part of, of County Wexford, where they had a similar sort of habitat. It's actually below sea level there. It's very rich foraging habitat for, for the birds. So they come in there in big, big numbers. So October is the perfect month to watch out for them. That's when they start to arrive and by the end of the month we should have good numbers in in Wexford. Yes, go to Wexford if you haven't been. Anyway, I mentioned Dr Ken Whelan, our fishery scientist. Ken as we speak is in Greenland and earlier myself and Richard Collins spoke to Ken from his hotel room of all places. Um, hello, Derek. I, I really feel at home here because I'm, I'm in a bedroom in a hotel and I'm looking out the window at a multitude of beautiful colours in the houses, lovely greens and blues and reds. A typical little village that you find uh, very close to or indeed on the, the Arctic Circle if you're a little bit further north. So I'm in southwest Greenland, Derek. I was here before and some listeners who have really good memories might remember a report I did after about 10 years ago. But this is a completely different mission that we're on today. And uh, I must say the people here are every bit as friendly as I remember before. I mean, the uh, continent as it is of Greenland, there's only 57,000 people in the whole continent, which I think is as big or maybe even a little bigger than Western Europe. 
But the few thousand people that are here really friendly come up and have a chat with you. I'm sure they don't have an idea of what I'm saying to them, but it's great, really enjoyable. What language do they speak there, Ken? Uh, They speak Greenlandic. That's a very important issue at the moment. The Greenlanders, for quite a number of years now, are very keen to be as independent as they can be. And uh, it's actually under the Danish crown, but it has a lot of independence at this stage. But they're very keen to try and increase that independence. But there are huge logistical issues in terms of trying to get uh, materials and so on to and from Greenland. But they're hugely innovative, the people, and they've done a fantastic job. And the cities and so on are coming on like you wouldn't believe. And where we were working today, uh, we could actually see a very major building works uh, going on. And that's building the new airport. And I think Cockertock will really come on once it gets uh, access to an airport. As it is at the the moment, there are no roads into where I am. So if I don't come back, Derek, you won't be able to come and find me by road. Uh, You'd have to either get a boat or you'd fly in by helicopter. But that's the only way to get here. And that's the beauty of being in Cockertock. I'm trying to get a mental picture of where exactly you are, Ken. So I'm imagining a map of the world or a globe. And if you think of where Greenland is to the north, you've got Russia dominating it up there in the north. And then to the northeast, you've got Finland, Sweden and Norway. And then come down a bit, you've got Iceland. And then flip over, you've got the United States on the other side to the west and Canada. And then you're surrounded by water. You've got the Arctic Ocean in the north, and in the south you've got the Atlantic Ocean. So now, where exactly are you in Greenland and what can you see? So it's on the southwestern uh, edge of Greenland, and it is just surrounded by what looks like huge Arctic tundra. So there's lots and lots of bare rock because we're right beside the ocean. And uh, just behind us then we have the huge big uh, um, ice cap, the big Greenlandic ice cap. Uh, we can't actually see it from where we are, but we flew right over it from Narsasawak when I come in on uh, when I come in on Tuesday, and that's a really really spectacular thing to see. Um, so you're in a situation where in a lot of Greenland it is extremely cold, but in this area here it does get a much warmer climate in the winter, relatively speaking. So the the actual bays or fjords that are here stay free, but they get a lot of visiting polar bears here. I was talking about the polar bears to them yesterday. And they love to see the polar bears coming. They, they visit in the wintertime. I haven't seen any, obviously, at this stage. I'm too early. And have they passed any comments about whether or not there's an increase or a decline in the number of bears? Um, they didn't seem to feel that it had changed very much, either in one direction or the other. But it may very well be um, that this is an area that gets polar bears, but they may not see the sort of densities of polar bears that you might see further north. But uh, the whole continent gets a vast amount of ice. Um, in the winter time, and I'm sure for the remaining polar bears, I'm sure it's a, it's an ideal habitat for them. But interestingly, uh, the area um, that I'm in is not that terribly far from the Northwest Passage, and we were looking at very large concentrations of jellyfish yesterday. And I had read in recent times that there are quite a lot of jellyfish now of species that are from the Pacific starting to appear in this particular area and uh, north of here and across to the northwest as well. And um, we may very well see very big changes if the ice doesn't uh, fully form over that northwest passage into the future. And we have concerns as well that we may see a joining up of all of the salmon species that are in the Pacific with the salmon that are here from the Atlantic, including our own salmon. 
So if we look across, straight across the ocean, if we were outside, I'm in a fjord, but if I was out in the open ocean, I could look across at the tip of Newfoundland if I could see that far. So that's exactly where it is. So you're on terra firma right now, Ken, you're in your bedroom, as you've told us. Just a few hours behind, as I understand, three hours or thereabouts, so you're still awake. We haven't disturbed your sleep. But why are you there? You spend most of your time when you're in Greenland on the water. And what exactly has the Greenland tracking project got to do with Irish salmon? Well, interestingly, um, about, I suppose it was 1960, maybe 61, 62, the people who aren't resident in Greenland uh, discovered that there were loads of salmon around Greenland. Um, This had been known, obviously, forever by the uh, Greenlandic people themselves. It was part of their catch. They knew these salmon were here, but nobody had any idea why these salmon were here, where they were from. But then quite a large and legal commercial fishery developed very quickly in the 60s to such an extent that uh, as these uh, ships that were catching salmon started to pick up uh, salmon that had been tagged in in, uh, Canada, in the US, in Ireland, in Scotland, they realised that these were the feeding salmon, European and American salmon were actually feeding here in Greenland because the seas are exceptionally rich. I mean, it was incredible yesterday to see the abundance of food around the boat. And uh, the fish at the moment are are, are gorging themselves and all the available food that's here. So these very rich seas, then, they offer a home for our bigger salmon. We have two types of salmon. We have the smaller salmon we call grilts, but the bigger salmon, which are normally between 10 and 20 pounds weight, it's here where I'm sitting just outside my window here in the fjords. That's where these salmon come to feed. It's a very, very long way. It's thousands of kilometres. And to find their way there, to find the food and find their way back, it's just extraordinary to sit in the boat and imagine that underneath are plenty of salmon, particularly in this area from Scotland and Ireland. And that's why you're there, Ken, along with your team members, to follow them to Greenland to discover what happens along the way on these magnificent journeys. It's the where they go, really. And it's, as I say, I'm piggybacking on some wonderful work that's been ongoing now by my colleagues from the Atlantic Salmon Federation and learning from them. We're all involved in looking at the tracks that the salmon take because we're very concerned, as I've mentioned on the programme before, about the effects of climate change and how that's changing the ocean. And up to this, certainly in Europe, we've concentrated very much on the early stages, the little baby salmon going out to sea and traveling up, as we know now, to Norway to do their initial feeding uh, around the Norwegian coast. But there was a real gap in our knowledge in terms of what happened then to fish that stayed more than one year at sea. We knew that they ended up in Greenland, but we have no idea how they really get here and we've no idea how they get home to us. We're beginning to put that patchwork now together because of the work that John and his colleagues are doing. And that's what gave me the opportunity then to come and work with them uh, to see how we can actually locate these salmon, how we can take a subsample of the salmon, put some really very clever tags in them and to monitor the salmon on their way back. And John has been doing this over the last few years. And fortunately, because of COVID, I was to come out in 2020 and never made it. And his uh, results from the last two years clearly show Uh, that almost half of his tagged fish are heading back to Scotland and Ireland. And we've we've done genetics as well on those fish to to show where they were from. So we have a real interest this year in getting 
um, European uh, groups that are interested in the conservation of salmon to get behind this programme and hopefully to offer us some funding then from Christmas onwards so we can continue the wonderful work that's going on here. It's so exciting. I mean, the amount we learned today even was just amazing. Just the behaviour of these creatures and what they're doing in the ocean and how different it is to what they do in freshwater. I was, I'm just bowled over by what I've done. I'm only here two days. It's just fantastic. Well, give us a little insight, Ken. What have you learned? Well, what we have learned is that these fish are just, in essence, most people listening to us, I think, will know what a pike is. Well, these are big silver pike at this stage. We tend to put them on a pedestal and they're looked on as very delicate fish that take a fly and uh, that very sophisticated anglers then can catch on a fly rod. These creatures are dashing around under our boat. We can see them on the echo sounder. Um, the seas, as I mentioned earlier, absolutely alive with what look like very small little um, sand eels. There's bigger sand eels. There's any amount of small squid. And they're feeding on these creatures and they're actually feeding in shoals because one of the salmon that we caught yesterday, as it breached, as it came near the boat, four, five, six salmon came up and splashed about, not understanding what was happening. And to see these fish coming right under the boat, these big elusive salmon, as we would see them in freshwater and to see them coming close to the boat was a revelation. And also we know from the work that John is doing and has done that you can find them all through the water column. We know that the baby salmon tem tend to spend a lot of time in the surface layers of the ocean, whereas these guys seem to feed wherever the food is available. And we have a fantastic boatman with us today, um, just an amazing guy who has an incredible knowledge of the natural history of his fjords and of this land. And he was telling us that even in the wintertime, if some of the areas north of here get iced up, the fish just go deeper. They're, they're around all the time. They're feeding all the time. So we knew nothing about the movements or the biology of these fish. And uh, we hope now to use some tracking units in the future and to be able to look at their local migrations here as well as their bigger migrations across the seas. So it's filling in what was an absolute gap in our knowledge. And it's interesting that it's happening at a time when climate change is really starting to impact the, the Arctic, where the big ice cap here in Greenland is not fully forming any winter. Uh, where you have a situation where you have lots of little small new streams beginning to gush out north of here from the glacier. They're semi-permanent at the moment and we've seen reports now that a sister species of the salmon, Arctic char, are beginning to invade these little streams. So we're seeing what happened 10,000 years ago. From a planet's point of view, it may be a disaster. From a biologist's point of view, it's absolutely fascinating to be here at this time and to see these changes happen. Ken, just before Richard gets in, and I know he's itching to do so, I just want to remind listeners that Irish salmon are Atlantic salmon and they spend a few years in Irish rivers as juveniles before heading out to sea. So when they leave our shores and head out to sea, where do they go? They go to, first of all, they go to Norway. And um, my colleagues then have worked on this since uh, the Salsi programme, again, something I talked about on the radio in 2008-2010 because I was working for the Marine Institute at that stage and we took a, a major role in that Salsi programme. That was the first big salmon at sea programme. Um, uh, we began to understand then the route that, that they were taking. So they go up along uh, the west coast of Norway and they arrive, having left our rivers in May, they arrive up there mid to late July. They feed away there until the autumn time. We're not absolutely certain 
what happens, but we suggest that maybe at that time they then make the decision whether they're going to actually come back and lay their eggs after one year or they're going to stay in, at sea for two or three years. So the ones that are going to come back to us at what we call grills or smaller salmon, they head back south to an area around the Faroe Islands. They feed there and then come back to us the following summer. Whereas the, the fish that we're looking at here in Greenland, they make this massive journey from Norway all, all the way across to East Greenland around the southern tip, just to my left here, the southern tip of Greenland, and then up into the area where I am. And they stay there for another year or two. And then they make this massive great journey then straight back right across the ocean. And that journey now, John Carr, my colleague, the chap who's leading the research programme, he is beginning to map that journey back. And also there's an equivalent journey back to North America. So um, the other thing, the last time I was in Greenland that really amazed me, I thought these fish would be out in the high seas. I thought they'd be miles out from the coast. They're actually in quite narrow uh, fjord-like bays, just like Killary Harbour. It's actually very, very similar to Killary Harbour where we are here with these massive great rocky promontories coming right out onto the edge of the water and going down to great depths. Uh, but it's just alive with food, as I say, and they're making the most of it. So you're catching some fish and you're putting tags on them. Yes, that's right. So we're putting two types of, types of tags on them. The most interesting tag really, are, this is really sophisticated technology. They cost about $5,000 each. And they're satellite tags. They're the same tags that are used on whales and dolphins and so on. So what happens is they're programmed and there's a little harness then we fit on the back of the fish and the fish carries the tag then for about six months. And at that stage, then there's, the, there's a small little chemical pack inside that harness. It has to be in salt water for it to trigger. And after about six months, then it dissolves away the connection between the actual sausage shaped, um, which looks a bit like my microphone, actually. The sausage shaped uh, um, satellite tag is released goes to the surface and immediately starts to transmit to satellites. And the satellites then pick up the information and that's transferred then back to the lab. Um, and it, it's, it gives us really detailed information on a daily basis of the, of the migration patterns, the movement, the temperature and so on of the fish, how deep they dive, which is very interesting. And we've seen some incredible records in terms of how deep they can dive. So there's lots, lots of information comes back. And then we're tagging with other tags as well, which are called acoustic tags. And they basically are transmitting all the time. And a lot of places now we have receivers um, uh, either in the sea or in river mouths. And we're hoping that some of these other transmitter tags, which are the smaller fish, we're tagging the smaller fish with the transmitter tags, they might be picked up as well. Ken, that's fascinating. I understand, Ken, that salmon spawn in only one river in Greenland. Do you expect, and presumably they don't spawn in other rivers because it's so cold and frozen up all the time. Now with climate change coming, are you anticipating further colonization of rivers in Greenland? Well, the, the, when I mentioned earlier that we're seeing what happened uh, 10,000 years ago repeat itself, I would not be at all surprised because we do know that with wild Atlantic salmon, there's a straying rate of somewhere between 6 and 8% on average. So it's a great way for nature to ensure if we get a situation as we're living through at the moment, that there, there is an opportunity for fish to eke out a living in uh, brand new habitats that wouldn't have been the place of their birth. 
So if we have straying salmon around, well, certainly we know in the past that it began with the char. After the char, then some of the sea-run trout went into these rivers and then finally the salmon. So it may very well repeat itself. And where I am, interestingly, there's a lot of salmon on the other side of the Northwest Passage that are different species, Pacific salmon. So if we start to get some of those coming down through, it'll be really interesting to see what's going to happen. Interesting or bad, Ken, would you say? Well, I, maybe I'm too positive, but I, I, I think these fish have been around, whether it's Pacific or Atlantic, um, they've been around for millions of years. It was 20 million years ago that they split between Atlantic and Pacific. So they will eke out an existence long before, or long after, rather, we're gone. So I would have great faith that they'll be, uh, that they'll be able to accommodate themselves. I think the most interesting thing is that um, it's not so much that things won't change. I think they will change, but I do think that the fish will find a way of changing with them. We may not find the fish in the places we originally thought they should be, but they'll make their own mind up where they should go. And certainly in this Arctic area where they've lots of cold, clean water, seems to be an ideal habitat for them. Salmon need trees to shelter under when they spawn, don't they? Now, Greenland is not a place one associates with trees. Uh, will that be a barrier to their colonising rivers there? I don't think so, in the sense that, um, remember when, when, when salmon spawn in the wintertime, and you remember myself and yourself and Derek down, we did a programme at one stage where we, we actually saw some salmon spawning down in County Mayo. Um, and certainly in the wintertime, you have very little vegetation about. Um, you have a situation where you have barren rivers, cold, clean water, as I mentioned earlier, lots and lots of gravel, very often, in our case, very coloured water. Uh, so the coloured water itself is, is, is a protection. Um, no, I don't think that would be a major that would be a major issue. We're very concerned, obviously, around uh, Europe in terms of the effects of uh, increasing temperatures on our waterways. And there is a very big push uh, to put back vegetation along riverbanks to try and shade the riverbanks and so on. But I don't think in this area it's going to be a major problem. There's actually quite a lot of tundra grasses and small bushes and so on. I think they'd be sufficient for, uh, for, for the juvenile fish if they came about. The um, Arctic char that I mentioned earlier, they're quite large here. Some of those would be as big as small salmon, five or six pounds weight. And they do extraordinarily well in these very barren streams. So again, nature can compensate and, and can make sure that they'll do well. There's fears for the survival of salmon in Europe. Can we hope that Greenland will take it up and that the salmon will not die out? They will simply shift northwards. Is the Greenland situation the saviour of our salmon? I'm not sure it's Greenland. Um, here we have the bigger salmon, we have what we call the multi sea winter salmon, and they were always the smaller numbers of bigger fish in our case, in Irish case in particular, where uh, the dominant uh, size of salmon are these smaller grills. But I think the overall Arctic area, I think the area right across from uh, the White Sea, right across from Russia, across the northern portion of Finland, the northern portion of Norway, and right across then towards um, Iceland and across to Greenland. I think that whole area will be the saviour of the salmon. And I think uh, that the salmon will adapt uh, to those areas, provided, of course, we don't get catastrophic changes, changes that will completely alter those areas as well. But all of the forecasts at the moment would indicate 
that we may see changes in those northern areas, but changes that will make them more habitable for the fish rather than a situation where in some way it excludes them. But I'm not sure I'd like to be a salmon in Portugal um, over the next uh, 50 or 60 years. I think I'd much prefer to be a salmon living in these lovely cool, cool fjords outside my window. Is the tagging regime changing? There was a paper a few years ago by the Georgia Institute of Technology about adipose fins, the little fin on the back in front of the tail. It was thought that this was vestigial, that is to say, like your appendix, uh, no known function, and that we could dispense with it. We used to cut that off, you used, as a way of tagging salmon. But this particular paper argued that, in fact, it has a function. It monitors the water going to the tail fin, and it's able to give information to the fish about that water, which is important. Does this mean that that method of tagging fish is gone and that you've gone over now to the high-tech stuff? Um, it's not gone completely. Um, certainly um, in Ireland in particular now, we, we release huge numbers of fish in some of the, uh, some of the rivers that, uh, that, that, that are harnessed for electricity and so on. And a lot of those fish are adipose clipped. We did a lot of work in Ireland and looked at, obviously very carefully, at the effects of any sort of uh, clipping of that, of, of that nature. I remember that paper coming out very clearly and I remember some subsequent papers as well. And we, we've put a lot of thought in. So uh, certainly if there is any fin clipping now, it's done with great care. But there are a, a huge amount of studies um, that actually show that in general, particularly with reared salmon as distinct from the wild ones, that the, um, um, the incidence of mortality as a result of that is very tiny. But nowadays, people don't generally don't clip fins at all. As you say, the technology has taken over. So, for example, the lovely, neat little acoustic tags, the little transmitter tags, they're very tiny. And what you do is put the fish asleep, put a tiny, tiny little slit in the fish, slip in this tiny little uh, tubular um, uh, tag, which is only, you know, maybe a kind of centimetre long, they just slip that into the body cavity, one little suture, fish is then put into a recovery bath and then it's released and they swim away absolutely, I think, uh, as healthy as when they went in. So that, that sort of technology has come on apace and it will improve. I'm reminded of ringing birds here. When you catch a bird, you establish a lot of things. Its age, its sex, to the extent to which you can. You take measurements and so forth. You glean as much information about that individual bird as you can. Now, you troll for fish behind your boat. Take us out on the boat and you've caught a fish. What is your procedure then? What measurements do you take? And what can you determine in your hand? Well, in the hand, what you what you take is you take the um, and uh, remember, as I say, the fish is, is is put asleep. We use clove oil, and um, they go sleep very quickly. So then again, um, water is being um, uh, spread through hose over the fish all the time to make sure that the gills are wet and so on. They're not stressed, so they're put into a tubular type um, uh, measuring board. So their head is just gently put up against the end of that. The measurement is taken. A weight is taken as they're lifted off. We take a few little scales. We get a huge amount of information from the scales, including the genetics of the fish itself. And that's about it, really. Um, the fish then is, is, is released. And in some instances, um, in some programs, the fish may be photographed as well and then released. But the, um, the scales are just fantastic because they are really um, a marine log of uh, the life of the fish 
and it also has inside in the centre then, just like a tree, it has a history then of freshwater um, in terms of its age and its uh, growth rate and so on. And we used to concentrate, when I started many decades ago as a young biologist, we concentrated mostly on, on the physical side of it. But there are just so many chemical tracers available in the uh, in the scales. The scales can tell you, you know, what the fish was feeding on. The scale can tell you the genetics of the fish and where the fish came from. So the, it's really a treasure trove. So th those uh, those th those samples are really uh, very carefully looked after and very carefully stored. I've heard it argued that your hand, when you handle a fish 37 degrees centigrade, so much higher in temperature than the fish, that this is actually equivalent to one of us being thrown into a bath of scalding water or something like that, and that it harms the fish. Is there any truth in that, or do you guard against that? Now, we, we guard against it very carefully. I, w I don't think it's as dramatic as, as, as being a, a sort of scalding hand, but certainly we, you have to be very careful in terms of any sort of change. And it's not just temperature that you have to be careful about if you're handling fish, because uh, actually in the marine here, it's a bit of a joy because we don't have the same issues I'm going to, going to describe. But if we're handling fish in freshwater, there's lots and lots of fungal spores around in freshwater. And uh, if we remove the overcoat, the slime of the fish, there's a real danger that some of those then will take hold and you get a fluffy white fungal infection on the fish. You can also stress the fish, as to say, so people generally are very careful in terms of making sure that um, if you're handling fish that you're doing it. We do all the work now in a watery environment. Uh, there's really no, no stress or the stress is minimised in terms of uh, any procedure then that's carried out. But the, as I say, the, the proof of the pudding is the percentage of fish that um, are recorded releasing the tags, which meant they have survived very in a very healthy state, we hope, for six months. And then uh, some of those fish then um, may make it back. And if they make it back, then um, sometimes the tag doesn't trigger and you actually get um, the fish coming back with the tag intact. That happened a few times last year. So... Um, Overall, the science is very carefully done and there's a lot of effort made to make sure that there's very, very small uh, mortality uh, based around any of these programs and that we're getting a true picture in terms of the movement of the fish. You're always worried if you're putting um, any sort of tracker on any sort of animal that it's going to give you very strange and very odd behaviour. And that's why you have to keep repeating the experiment over quite a number of years. Well, it's fascinating listening to you, Ken, I have to say. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time out of your very busy schedule there in Greenland. Ken, thank you very much indeed. All right, guys. Talk to you soon again. Thank Best you. Bye. Luck, Ken. Bye. And that's pretty much all we have time for. Don't forget, you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash mini. Until next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.